and welcome to a virtual view. I'm joined today by Albert Vieira, a director of telehealth and telehealth advocate from Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been in information technology for just about 30 years. Started off in private industry, did some work with federal government, academia, nonprofit, and in 2004, I got into healthcare. Initially, I was on the information technology side of healthcare, but then in 2010, I transitioned to the virtual care telehealth space. Over the last 14 years, I've been both on the hospital provider side as well as the vendor's technology side, and now I'm back in the hospital space. So I've got a little bit of experience being on both sides of the technology. I was going to say, you have quite a bit of telehealth experience in multiple different aspects, which is really cool. Yeah, I've been very fortunate and blessed that I've been with some organizations that have allowed me to try some different use cases and different technologies to support those use cases. So I've been able to get my hands on a lot of different workflows and different solutions and different ways and creative ways of delivering patient care. So it's been it's been fun and unique and exciting at the same time. Yeah. And I'm sure you've got to see how much the telehealth landscape has really changed in the last well, like a decade, but also the last couple of years since COVID as well. Yeah, it has changed tremendously. I remember back in 2010, 2011, while there was telemedicine, it was not very widely adopted and utilized. It was very specialized because back then everything had to be hardwired. You had to have really expensive technology and video equipment to be able to do it so it was very limited and it was also very expensive but then around 2010 2011 2012 when kind of wireless became kind of more available throughout different organizations and different hospital infrastructures that kind of opened the doors to look at some creative models and different ways of doing things and so we were very fortunate enough at that point to kind of for me to be able to hit that's hit that area and hit that space during that time I was able to you know have my sandbox and kind of played around with some things and tried some things and while I worked and we were like okay well what if we did this and what if we did that and next thing you know we had patients and providers talking to one another and it was just kind of took off from there yeah that's so cool so is this something where you got involved in telehealth deliberately is that something you strived for or did you kind of fall into it I would say A little bit of both. As I mentioned, I had been on the information technology kind of infrastructure and support side for, at that time, you know, 12 to 13 years. And the opportunity with my organization popped up and it looked rather interesting to me. And so I kind of gave it a shot and, and had some conversations and those conversations led to an opportunity. Back then, I didn't even know what telehealth and virtual care was. So I was just kind of learning about it. But I was very, very fortunate to work with a neurologist at my hospital in Maryland, who I have the highest respect and regard for. And I think he's just a visionary when it comes to understanding enough about technologies and knowing enough about patient care, where he just kind of saw some opportunities to do some things in a way that no one had done before. And 
I was kind of brought along or asked to kind of support him from a technology perspective. But the one thing that he did that I'll never forget and has been instrumental in kind of my evolution was for the first maybe three to six months, he would take me around and I would round with him as he would go to the ED and talk to patients or go into our progressive care unit and talk to patients and follow up. And I would walk the floors as he talked to nurses and the different clinical staff. I would sit in on his weekly case studies and uh, tumor boards and things like that. And we would just, I would just learn just watching Mm -hmm. him at the point of care, how he interacted with folks and how he interacted with patients and patient families. And so I started to learn the point of care aspect of it, which I think is essential for this work, because in many cases, my IT background had me behind the scenes. So I'm generally never in a patient care room or working with a provider at the point of care. So I'm supporting all the systems that they use, but I'm not seeing them actually try to use them to deliver care. That was very eye-opening for me, and that was something that I think was very necessary for me to fully understand in order to be the person I have become in this space, because I really tried to find the, the intersection between operational needs and challenges with clinical needs and challenges with technology needs and challenges. So I like to think of myself as trilingual, where I kind of know a little <laughs> bit of all those spaces, and I tried to, you know, bring bring solutions to life by combining all the different pain points and challenges that come with those. Yeah, no, that sounds invaluable to have that perspective from a medical professional like that who is passionate about patient care and about the intersection of patient care and technology. And a lot of times I've found that the places where telehealth is advancing the most effectively is when you have someone like that who really is just an advocate and who really cares about this and who really wants this to work. I completely agree. What I've found is I can know technology or technologies up and down, left, right, inside out, and I can implement those technologies and they could be ready to go. But telehealth is not about just the technology. It's about the people. It's about the process. It's about the workflow. It's about the experience. And when you have a clinical champion that can speak to the clinical value and the benefits, not only for care providers, but also for patients, that is what resonates and that's what moves the needle and starts to change whether things get adopted or not. Obviously, there's an operational and a business component to this as well, but those things, while they're important, they do not take precedence over having a clinical champion that really believes and really is willing to do what it takes to kind of advocate and fight for these solutions and these approaches. Right. And I think that is something that we have to keep in mind, particularly when we see technology developing so rapidly, like these things like AI and machine learning that are becoming part of our lexicon now and are becoming part of the telehealth landscape. If we're not involving our providers and our clinicians when we're deciding how to use those, I think we're really missing a lot of important opportunities to determine how is actually the most effective way to utilize these technologies. Yeah, I think that the challenge is this industry as a whole, we tend to get caught up by shiny new objects and new technologies, AI, telehealth, whatever it is. All of those technologies are great and they provide us the ability to empower clinicians to be able to deliver care in ways that haven't been done before. But the problem is 
there may be a few providers that can take advantage of this. In order for there to be wide stream adoption, you've got to educate the masses. It's the other 95% of the providers that aren't technically savvy and aren't the ones that know how to use technology the way that the, the, the higher percentage folks do. That's where it's going to move the needle and that's where it's going to become hopefully more impactful and sustainable. For sure, because I have talked to providers before who just straight up tell me I don't like telehealth (laughs) or it's like, I don't want to learn how to use this. (laughs) I've heard it many times myself. I've been very fortunate enough to work with a lot of different clinicians at different points of care and in different settings and different specialty areas. And there's an assumption that is made that all people can learn these technologies. There are some providers that are scared to death <laughs> that to, to, to have to do what we were doing earlier, putting on headsets and trying to figure out which camera to use and how to turn it on and off. And for some folks, it's just not, it's not their thing. They went to medical school to learn how to care for patients, not to mess with USB plugs and turn mics off and on. Yeah, and I'm I'm sympathetic to that because we've been asking more and more from providers and some of them just don't want to engage. And like, I, while I don't necessarily agree with that perspective because I am a telehealth advocate, I understand where it comes from. I really do. Yeah, they're overwhelmed. I like to think of it as just technology overload. If it's not the things that you need to learn and use to conduct a telehealth visit, it's the amount of logins for different applications that they need to use throughout the course of their day and the different mouse clicks that they have to perform in order to document things or to get access to imaging or whatever it may be. I mean, the EMRs themselves are pretty challenging just to learn that system. And then if you have a number of third parties, other systems that are bringing in information, having to log out, log in. It can be a challenge for them. And and I understand because there are certain applications that I have to toggle between during my workday. And I'm just like, wow, couldn't it just be all on one screen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we all get technology fatigue or Zoom fatigue, I guess they call it after uh, working from home. There's definitely a lot of fatigue going on in a number of different places. And I think that that's the one thing that I've been trying to do with my team and the folks that I work with is trying to figure out that balance because everyone gets to their wits end when it comes to certain things. And the last thing you want me to do is to come along and say, hey, by the way, why don't you do this on top of the things you're already? So we have to be a little mindful of that. And we also have to give people a little grace and space. Yeah, no, you're 100% right there. I totally agree. So when we talk about telehealth, why is it important to consider telehealth, not just from the perspective of day-to-day activities, providers, clinicians, all of this? Why is it important to also look at it from a research perspective or an academic perspective? From my perspective, it's important because As you mentioned, telehealth has gone through what I am considering, and this is just my personal take on it, three different eras. I would say the era when I mentioned earlier before 2010 when it was not widely used and commonplace, but it was kind of the telemedicine period. I think from 2010 to about 2020, and there was some obviously evolution and improvements. I like to think of that as like telehealth 2.0 because there was a, a huge 
I would say trend for organizations to start using telehealth, but many of them were using them in specialized cases, for example, telestroke or, or something along those lines, telederm. And then when we hit COVID, we, we got to a point where we had to shift quickly in response to a crisis, to, to a pandemic. And at that point in time, it was just do it. <laughs> it was just do it however you have to do it to meet the need. But one of the things that I think is important, and this was something that was an issue before COVID, was there are a lot of skeptical folks about telehealth. There are a lot of naysayers. And while there's a number of people like yourself and I that are advocates and we're trying to promote the positives and the benefits if telehealth is applied in the appropriate ways. But there are people that say, well, show me the data. Show me mm-hmm. the data that it's actually made a difference on improving outcomes and improving the health of people and it's in actually reducing total care costs. Or show me the data that it's improving access to at-risk populations. And then at that point, that's when I tend to see like the mental breaks come to a halt or the crickets start. I've been to a number of conferences across the country over the last five to ten years where these debates happen either in breakout sessions or keynote sessions or in a lunchroom or at a after-hours establishment. And <laughs> you find out that there's two sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. And to me, one of the things that I remember, there was a physician that once said to me, if you can just show me the clinical data where there's been a rigorous academic research done and there's data that can show whatever it shows, if it shows that it's meaningful and beneficial, I would be on board. But he's like, my neck is on the line. My license is on the line. My reputation is on the line. And I just prefer to see my patients in person where I can touch them, feel them and see them. And until I get convinced otherwise, you know, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical. Mm-hmm. Not to say that these technologies aren't amazing and they are the future. It's just when. When is the right time for us to really embrace it and adopt it? And I think that that's where the academic research part comes into play because you can take the data and marry that with the practitioner experience and then you can hopefully find that middle ground where everyone can universally agree that applied in these ways or performed in these facets, there really is a significant benefit. Yeah, I think that's an extremely accurate perspective. And I do think that when there are those physicians who say, I don't want to use telehealth, or I don't like it, there is kind of what you described behind a lot of that, these physicians who just want that proof and just want that data. Yeah, and I think I like to know it's probably there's no official science to this, but there's kind of the technology favorable clinicians that will are willing to try it and are willing to adopt it and be kind of the early adopters. There's the ones that are on the opposite end that no matter what the case may be, they're going to fight tooth and nail to ever learn or try to use these tools and technology. But then there's those people that are in the middle. You know, mm-hmm. I would say maybe 50 to 60 percent of those people that are kind of in the middle. And if you're able to provide them with enough information enough data and make a compelling case, they would be open to trying it if they have the right support resources, the right training, and the right tools. It's those individuals that I think are most important at this particular time as we're now looking at a post-COVID kind of next phase of this return to reality in healthcare. If we do not kind of build on and maintain the momentum that we've created over the last three and a half years, 
we will have lost a once-in-a-lifetime tremendous opportunity to really advance healthcare in a way that I don't think will ever be done again, at least in my lifetime. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think this is the time to get buy-in from providers, legislators, the general public, because we have seen what telehealth can do thanks to COVID. And now we're at a point where folks are like, okay, new normal, back to how things were going before. And it's like, no, let's not get rid of all the progress that we made. Yeah. And I think this goes back to where your clinical champions have to kind of get out front and lead from the front. Because if your leaders aren't really showing support for it and aren't really excited and enthusiastic about it, and they're not really advocating for this to continue, you're going to start to see the waters recede to the mm-hmm. point where they kind of go all the way back. And I hope that that doesn't happen, but we need more clinical champions to get out here and speak to the benefits and not only just speak to it, but actually perform and do these things, you know, lead by example, not just by words. For sure. And I think giving them that data and that academic research is giving them another arrow in their quiver, so to speak, <laughs> something that they can use when they're advocating for this. And also when we have this data, we can make sure that we're using telehealth in the most effective way. Because even as somebody who is a telehealth advocate, I don't think it's perfect for every situation. Like I can't get an MRI from my home. Like that's <laughs> there are certain things that you just can't do via telehealth. But then there are other things that lend themselves incredibly well to it. That's funny that you make that point because I just had a conversation with some physicians this past week, week and a half, and we were talking about you know, some of the efforts that we're going through to try to encourage adoption. And one of the physicians said those exact things is that the the feedback that they're getting from other physicians is they don't know what types of services or what types of care that they can deliver that they think is most appropriate for telehealth. And I think while I've made the assumption, like you should be able to tell (laughs) which types of things, (laughs) people want guidance and they want you to kind of spell out for them. These three things are really good for you to, you know, if you have patients that need these types of encounters or these types of interactions, these three things kind of fall in a bucket that would be optimal for telehealth. And these other things, you know, it's kind of a case by case situation. And then absolutely, in these cases, you have to do this in person. So I think we do need to provide more guidance and not assume that providers can make those decisions and make that determination on their own. And even if they can provide them with more supporting information or a decision tree to help them kind of go through it a little easier. Yeah, and I think CMS is in the process of working through a lot of that right now. As you see, which codes or which services are currently allowed and which are allowed on a temporary basis and which ones we've said, okay, no more of this. So a lot of what they've said they're doing right now is we're looking at this from a research perspective. We want to see if these things are working and if they are as effective as performing the sort of care in person is. Whatever we need to do to just kind of build that evidence-based support and knowledge so that people Regardless of where you stand, where you sit, <laughs> you can feel comfortable that you we can move forward as an industry and identify the types of patients that can be seen and be effectively cared for with these tools and technologies. I think that's the way we have to go. I do like that you mentioned types of patients, not just types of care, because there are some patients who are ill-suited to telehealth. 
folks who are not comfortable with technology, folks who don't have that same digital literacy. Like I personally really like telehealth whenever I have the opportunity to go to an appointment on my computer (laughs) instead of in person, I'm going to do that. But I know that there are some patients who just don't have that same perspective. I think you just hit on one of the areas that really are an area for me that I am passionate about. It's more Mm -hmm. around what I call digital health equity and disparities, because I'm concerned that people that may not be the optimal patient, if they aren't the optimal patient, they won't be able to take advantage of some of these tools and these methods of care. And what will happen is not only do we have healthcare disparities in in in-person care, we will then start to create those healthcare disparities in remote care or digital care, telehealth, whatever term you want to use. What we've found in my experience is that just because someone has a smartphone or an iPad and internet connection does not mean that they are able to do uh, video visits and be able to interact with their care team using a mobile health app. Sometimes you have patients that have limited mobility, they may have limited comprehension, or they may just have other circumstances in their household that may not be conducive to those things. To be able to do a telehealth encounter in a in a space where they can have privacy and be able to share their most intimate health details with their mm-hmm. provider. Or the other one that's also a big one that we've seen is if you are a non-English speaking patient, it's almost as if you don't even get access to telehealth to the same level as English speaking people because all the materials, all the training and education materials about it are written in English. When you try to translate those in other languages, in many cases, they fall short in terms of conveying the same benefits and the same value. So therefore, you're not really making a case for someone that speaks Spanish, for example, to want to do telehealth when you're not able, they're not able to understand that it's convenient for them. It could save them from having to take time off of work or having to make arrangements for transportation or childcare. If those benefits aren't articulated in their language where they fully understand it, then they're going to have difficulty wanting to meet with their care providers in these ways. But others are benefiting from that because they have gotten comfort and they have gotten the training and education that they need. So to me, I'm really concerned about kind of this two-tiered system that we're unintentionally starting to create. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that because I can say I like telehealth. Telehealth is something that works really great, but I'm talking about my own personal experiences and I'm somebody who has a whole bunch of different privileges. I have insurance. I have a private space. I speak English. I I have a lot of advantages that the folks that you're talking about don't necessarily have. And so they're just not able to access this whole care modality. And like you said, we see the same disparities and the same health inequities just recreating themselves now in this digital space. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah, we've got a long ways to go in that. So it's exciting to have all these new tools and technologies and new methods of care. But it's also a little frightening that we could be exacerbating these healthcare disparities and now doing it in a digital form. I would 100% agree with that. And I I do think that goes back to research a little bit, where we need to have that supporting research that can show us just how beneficial this can be, but also just how damaging it can be if we're not utilizing this in the right way. Yeah. And I just think the other piece, along with research and information and data, 
once that information, that data, that research is out there, you know, you hope that the decision makers, the key stakeholders will actually, you know, process that information and actually act on it as opposed to just sometimes not doing anything or not doing enough. For sure. I'm part of uh, Indiana's Digital Equity Task Force right now, and we've had a lot of these conversations. And sometimes when you've got a room full of people who have certain privileges, they're just, it's not occurring to them that, hey, we really need to be deliberate about how we're doing this or else we're going to just exacerbate the same problems. You know, sometimes you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes and it's hard to to do that when you're in a situation, like you say, where you maybe don't have to utilize these services. But I was in a situation earlier this year when my mother fell ill and she had to um, go through some hospital services and I was on the other side of it and I was in a system that I was not familiar with or a part of so I didn't have any relationships any connections or any people I could call and when you're on that side of it that is when you start to realize that there are definitely things that we can do a little bit better. I completely understand what you're saying when you have to go into this system as a patient it can be incredibly intimidating to have to engage with the system because it's not necessarily made for every single person, you know? Yeah, my mother is a prime example of that because she's a type of person, she lives in a rural area and she drives an hour or more to her healthcare provider and she sometimes has to go see specialists, she sometimes has to go get diagnostic tests taken and, you know, it's a significant commitment for her to drive that way or, or to drive that distance. But there's some appointments that she drives to go to her provider's office that is just a follow-up or a checkup. And she could have easily done that via video. Unfortunately, those those situations aren't offered to her. And I wonder why, because everyone should be able to do that at, at this point, at least in my mind. But once again, it's just those are the scenarios that I think of that when you're in that situation and you're on the receiving side, meaning you're the patient or you're the loved one of a patient, you start to question and wonder why. <laughs> why is it so difficult? Why can't we make it easier? Yeah, no, I'd say to be an effective advocate for telehealth, you also have to be an advocate for health equity. Absolutely. So before we go today, is there anything in the future of telehealth that you're particularly excited about? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that I'm excited about. I know that there's been a lot of advancements in the area of remote patient monitoring, which I think a lot of organizations have now started to do to some level or another. And I've been fortunate enough to have some experience with that myself. But I also am starting to see, which I think is kind of the future of where healthcare is going. And I think it hasn't necessarily picked up just yet, but I think it's coming. I think we're going to start to see a shift into more asynchronous care and asynchronous services. One of the challenges that I see with our current setup is with synchronous care, you have to schedule a time and you have to have two or more people to coordinate on that time, just like our meeting today. Yeah. <laughs> but as we know, providers' schedules are very full, and sometimes they run late, and sometimes they get pulled into other things. And so staffing and availability are challenges that are I don't think are going to get better anytime soon. So to me, using technologies 
to be able to get information to a care team or a care provider and being able to then look at that in a transactional kind of way look at it when they're available, evaluate it, make a clinical diagnosis, and then get that diagnosis back to the next level of care or back to the patient and say, hey, I think this is the way we're, that's going to be most efficient and most effective because I just don't see an influx in doctors and nurses and other mid-level care providers, and I don't just see um, there's not going to be additional hours to the day and additional slots that open up in in, <laughs> in, in different uh, schedules. So I just think I'm a firm believer of using technology to work smarter, not harder. And I fully think that we have to do more with less. That's just the way the world is, especially with a lot of the economic challenges that we have right now in many organizations. So to me, trying to work with tools that allow us to do asynchronous care I think will be an opportunity for us to offload some of that burden that we currently have and we put on our our, our systems. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I do think that technology is going to allow us the opportunity to sort of really reconceptualize what healthcare looks like. Because not every appointment needs to be, I sit down, I wait for my provider to join, we talk for half an hour, and then we're done. Like, because of things like RPM and asynchronous care, I could submit my results from like my Apple Watch to my provider. They could read them and they could send me a message. And that frees up my time, that frees up their time. So yeah, I would definitely agree that that's something to be excited about. (laughs) Yeah, between that and, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of the consumer data that patients are now able to provide, that does create an opportunity to be able to have your care providers be able to check in on you. But I think there's also the challenges if you have hundreds of thousands of patients sending data to a health system, who's going to sift through all that data? So I think you're going to have to put the algorithms and filters in place to say, you know, only act on certain data if, if it meets these particular triggers or the or outside of these particular boundaries. Because once again, too much information doesn't provide us any benefit or value either. Right. Yeah. Every uh, solution comes with its own complications. We've got things like data bloat and all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. I think we covered a couple of the areas that are, like I said, near and dear to my heart when I talk about digital health disparities and just health disparities and health inequities. The system as it is, I think telehealth can definitely make inroads in trying to close some of those gaps and to improve access to at-risk populations. And so I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. 
Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.